Chapter thirty nine of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo. Translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Chapter thirty nine. All must perish. The sword cleaveth the helmet. The strong armor is pierced by the lance. Fire devours the dwelling of princes. Engines break down the fences of the battle. All must perish. The race of Hengist is gone. The name of Horsa is no more. Shrink not then from your doom, sons of the sword. Let your blades drink blood like wine. Feast ye in the banquet of slaughter. By the light of the blazing halls, strong be your swords while your blood is warm, and spare neither for pity nor fear, for vengeance hath but an hour. Strong hate itself shall expire. I also must perish. Walter Scott, Ivanhoe. We will not try to describe the fearful confusion which broke the already straggling ranks of the rebels when the fatal defile suddenly revealed to them all its steep and bristling peaks, all its caverns peopled with unlooked-for foes. It would be hard to say whether the prolonged shout, made up of a thousand shrieks, which rose from the columns of men thus unexpectedly mowed down, was a yell of despair, of terror, or of rage. The dreadful fire vomited against them from every side by the now unmasked platoons of the royal troops, grew hotter every moment, and before another shot from their lines followed Cannibal's unfortunate volley, they were wrapped in a stifling cloud of burning smoke, through which death flew blindly, where each man, shut off from his friends, could but dimly distinguish the musketeers, lancers, and dragoons, moving vaguely among the cliffs and upon the edge of the thickets, like demons in a red-hot furnace. The insurgents, thus scattered over a distance of a mile, upon a narrow winding road, bordered on one side by a deep torrent, on the other by a rocky wall, which made it impossible for them to turn and fall back, were like a serpent destroyed by a blow on the back, when he has unwound all his spirals, and though cut to pieces, still tries to turn and coil, striving to unite his separate fragments. When their first surprise was past, a common despair seemed to animate all these men, naturally fierce and intrepid. Frantic with rage to be thus overwhelmed without the possibility of defence, the rebels uttered a simultaneous shout, a shout which in an instant drowned the clamour of their triumphant foes. And when the latter saw these men, without leaders, in dire disorder, almost destitute of weapons, climbing perpendicular cliffs under a terrible fire, clinging with tooth and nail to the bushes growing on the verge of the precipice, brandishing hammers and pitchforks, the well-armed troops, well-drilled, securely posted as they were, although they had not yet lost a single man, could not resist a moment of involuntary panic. Several times these barbarians clambered over a bridge of dead bodies, or upon the shoulders of their comrades, planted against a rock like a living ladder, to the heights held by their assailants. But they had scarcely cried, Liberty! had scarcely lifted their hatchets or their knotted clubs, they had scarcely showed their blackened faces, foaming with convulsive rage, ere they were hurled into the abyss, dragging with them such of their rash companions as they encountered in their fall, hanging to some bush or hugging some cliff. The efforts of these unfortunates to fly and to defend themselves were fruitless. Every outlet was guarded, every accessible point swarmed with soldiers. The greater part of the luckless rebels bit the dust, perishing when they had shattered scythe or cutlass upon some granite fragment, some folding their arms, their eyes fixed upon the ground, 
sat by the roadside, silently waiting for a ball to hurl them into the torrent below. Those whom Hackett's forethought had provided with wretched muskets fired a few chance shots at the summit of the cliffs and the mouth of the caves, from which a ceaseless rain of shot fell upon their heads. A tremendous uproar, in which the furious shouts of the rebel leaders and the quiet commands of the king's officers were plainly distinguishable, was mingled with the intermittent and frequent din of musketry, while a bloody vapour rose and floated above the scene of carnage, veiling the face of the mountains in tremulous mists, and the stream, white with foam, flowed like an enemy between the two bodies of hostile men, bearing away upon its bosom its prey of corpses. In the earlier stage of the action, or rather of the slaughter, the Kjölen mountaineers, under the brave and reckless cannibal, were the greatest sufferers. It will be remembered that they formed the advance guard of the rebel army, and that they had entered the pine wood at the head of the pass. The ill-fated cannibal had no sooner fired his gun than the forest, peopled as by magic with hostile sharpshooters, surrounded them with a ring of fire, while from a level height, commanded by a number of huge boulders, an entire battalion of the Munkholm regiment, formed in a hollow square, battered them unceasingly with a fearful musketry. In this horrible emergency, Cannibal, distracted and aghast, gazed at the mysterious giant, his only hope of safety lying in some superhuman power, such as that of Hans of Iceland. But alas, the awful demon did not suddenly unfold broad wings and soar above the combatants, spitting forth fire and brimstone upon the musketeers. He did not grow and grow until he reached the clouds, and overthrow a mountain upon the foe, or stamp upon the earth and open a yawning gulf to swallow up the ambushed army. The dreadful hands of Iceland shrank like cannibal from the first volley of shot, and approaching him with troubled countenance asked for a carbine, because, he said, in a very commonplace tone, at such a time his axe was quite as useless as any old woman's spindle. Cannibal, amazed but still credulous, offered his own musket to the giant with a terror which almost made him forget his fear of the balls showering about him. Still expecting a miracle, he looked to see his fatal weapon become as big as a cannon in the hands of Hans of Iceland, or to see it change into a winged dragon darting fire from eyes, mouth and nostrils. Nothing of the sort occurred, and the poor hunter's astonishment reached its climax when he saw the demon load the gun with ordinary powder and shot, just as he himself might have done take aim like himself, and fire, though with far less skill than he would have shown. He stared at him in stupid surprise, as this purely mechanical act was repeated again and again, and convinced at last that all hope of a miracle must be abandoned, he turned his thoughts to rescuing his companions and himself from their evil predicament by some human means. Already his poor old friend Gulden Stiper lay beside him, riddled with bullets, Already his followers, terrified and unable to escape, surrounded on every hand, huddled together without a thought of defence, uttering distressing cries. Cannibal saw what an easy target this mass of men afforded the enemy's guns, each discharge destroying a score of the insurgents. He ordered his unfortunate companions to scatter, to take refuge in the bushes along the road, much thicker and larger at this point than anywhere else in Black Pillar Pass, to hide in the underbrush, and to reply as best they could to the more and more murderous fire from the sharpshooters and the Munkholm battalion. The mountaineers, for the most part well armed, being all hunters, carried out their leader's order with a readiness which they might not have displayed at a less critical moment, for in the face of danger men usually lose their head, and obey willingly anyone who has presence of mind and self-possession to act for all. 
Still, this wise measure was far from ensuring victory or even safety. More mountaineers lay stretched upon the ground than still lived, and in spite of the example and encouragement offered them by their leader and the giant, several of them, leaning on their useless guns or prostrate with the wounded, obstinately persisted in waiting to be killed without taking the trouble to kill others in return. It may seem amazing that these men, in the habit of exposing their life every day in their expeditions over the glaciers in pursuit of wild beasts, should lose heart so soon. But let no one forget that in vulgar hearts courage is purely local. A man may laugh at shot and shell, and shiver in the dark or on the edge of a precipice. A man may face fierce animals daily, leap across fearful abysses, and yet run from a volley of artillery. Fearlessness is often only a habit, and one who has ceased to fear death under certain forms dreads it none the less. Cannibal, surrounded by heaps of dying friends, began himself to despair, although as yet he had received only a slight scratch on his left arm, and the diabolical giant still kept up his fire with the most comforting composure. All at once he saw an extraordinary confusion in the fatal battalion posted on the heights, which could not be caused by the slight damage inflicted by the very feeble resistance of his followers. He heard fearful shrieks of agony, the curses of the dying, exclamations of terror, rise from the victors. Soon their fire slackened, the smoke cleared away, and he distinctly saw huge masses of granite falling upon the Munkholm musketeers from the top of the high cliff overlooking the level height upon which they were stationed. These boulders succeeded one another with awful rapidity. They crashed one upon the other and rebounded among the soldiers, who, breaking their lines, rushed in dire disorder down the hill and fled in every direction. At this unexpected aid, Cannibal turned, but the giant was still there. The mountaineer was dumbfounded, for he supposed that Hans of Iceland had at last found his wings and taken his place upon the cliff from which he overwhelmed the enemy. He looked up to the spot whence those fearful masses fell and saw nothing. He could therefore only suppose that a party of rebels had succeeded in reaching this dangerous position, although he saw no glitter of weapons and heard no shouts of triumph. However, the fire from the plateau had wholly ceased. The trees hid the remnant of the royal troops, who were probably rallying their forces at the foot of the hill. The musketry from the sharpshooters also became less frequent. Cannibal, like a skilful leader, took advantage of this unexpected interval. He encouraged his men and showed them by the sombre light which reddened the scene of slaughter, the pile of corpses heaped upon the height, and the boulders which still fell at intervals. Then the mountaineers in their turn answered the enemy's groans with shouts of victory. They formed in line, and although still harassed by sharpshooters scattered among the bushes, they resolved, filled with fresh courage, to force their way out of this ill-omened defile. The column thus formed was about to move. Cannibal had already given the signal with his horn, amid loud cries of, Liberty! Liberty! No more protectorate! When the notes of trumpet and drum sounding a charge were heard directly in front of them. Then the rest of the battalion from the height, strengthened by reinforcements of fresh troops, appeared within gunshot at a turn in the road, displaying a bristling line of pikes and bayonets, upheld by rank upon rank, as far as the eye could reach. Arriving thus unexpectedly in sight of Cannibal's division, the troops halted, and the man, who seemed to be the commanding officer, stepped forward, waving a white flag, and escorted by a trumpeter. The unforeseen appearance of this troop did not dismay Cannibal. 
In time of danger there is a point where surprise and fear become impossible. At the first sound of trumpet and drum, the old fox of Kjölen halted his men. As the royal troops drew up before him in line of battle, he ordered every gun to be loaded, and formed his mountaineers in double ranks, so that they might not offer so broad a mark for the enemy's fire. He placed himself at the head, the giant at his side, as in the heat of action, for he began to feel quite familiar with him, and observed that his eyes did not flame quite so brightly as a smithy's forge, and that his pretended claws were by no means as unlike ordinary human fingernails as was claimed for them. When the officer in command of the musketeers stepped forward as if to surrender, and the sharpshooters ceased firing, although their loud shouts ringing out on every hand declared them still ambushed in the forests, he suspended his preparations for defence. Meantime the officer with the white flag had reached the centre of the space between the two hostile columns. Here he paused, and the trumpeter accompanying him blew three loud blasts. The officer then cried in a loud voice, distinctly heard by the mountaineers, in spite of the ever-increasing tumult of the battle raging behind them in the mountain gorges. In the king's name, the king graciously pardons all those rebels who throw down their arms and surrender their leaders to his majesty's supreme justice. The bearer of the flag of truce had scarcely pronounced those words when a shot was fired from a neighboring thicket. The officer staggered, took a few steps forward, raising his flag above his head, and fell, exclaiming, Treason! No one knew whose hand had fired the fatal shot. Treason! Cowardly treason! repeated the royal troops with a thrill of indignation, and a fearful volley of musketry overwhelmed the mountaineers. Treason! replied the mountaineers in their turn, made furious as they saw their brothers fall and the general discharge answered the unexpected attack from the royal troops. At them, comrades! Death to those vile cowards! Death! cried the officers of the musketeers. And both parties rushed forward with drawn swords, the two contending columns meeting directly over the body of the unfortunate officer with a fearful din of arms. The broken ranks were soon inextricably confounded. Rebel chiefs, king's officers, soldiers, mountaineers, all pell-mell ran their heads together, seized one another, grappled like two bands of famished tigers meeting in the desert. Their long pikes, bayonets, and partisans were now useless. Swords and hatchets alone gleamed above their heads, and many of the combatants, in their hand-to-hand -hand struggle, could use no other weapon than their dagger or their teeth. The same rage and fury inspired both mountaineers and musketeers. The common cry of, TREASON! VENGEANCE! sprang from every mouth. The fray had reached a point when every heart was full of brutal ferocity, when men walked with utter indifference over heaps of wounded and dead, amid which the dying revive only to make one last attack on him who tramples them underfoot. At this moment a short man, whom several combatants amid the smoke and streaming blood took for a wild beast in his dress of skins, flung himself into the thick of the carnage with awful laughter and yells of joy. None knew whence he came, nor upon which side he fought, for his stone axe did not choose its victims, but smote alike the skull of a rebel and the head of a musketeer. He seemed, however, to prefer slaying the Munkholm troops. All gave way before him. He rushed through the fray like a disembodied spirit, and his bloody axe whirled about him without a pause, scattering fragments of flesh, lacerated limbs, and shattered bones on every side. He shrieked, 
Vengeance! As did all the rest, and uttered strange words, the name of Jill, recurring frequently. This fearful stranger seemed to regard the slaughter as a feast. A mountaineer upon whom his murderous glance fell threw himself at the feet of the giant in whom Cannibal had placed such vain trust, crying, Hans of Iceland, save me! Hans of Iceland, repeated the little man. He approached the giant. Are you Hans of Iceland? he asked. The giant, by way of answer, raised his axe. The small man sprang back, and the blade, as it fell, was buried in the skull of the wretch who had implored his aid. The unknown laughed aloud. <laughs> By Ingolf, I thought Hans of Iceland was more skillful. It is thus that Hans of Iceland saves those who pray to him for help said the giant you are right the two dreadful champions attacked each other madly stone axe and steel axe met they clashed so fiercely that both blades flew in fragments with a myriad sparks quicker than thought the little man finding himself disarmed seized a heavy wooden club dropped by some dying man and evading the giant who stooped to grasp him in his arms dealt a furious blow with both hands on the broad brow of his colossal antagonist. The giant uttered a stifled shriek and fell. The little man trampled him underfoot in triumph, foaming with joy and exclaiming, You bore a name too heavy for you. And brandishing his victorious mace, he rushed in search of fresh victims. The giant was not dead. The force of the blow had stunned him, and he dropped senseless, but soon opened his eyes and gave faint signs of returning life. A musketeer, seeing him through the uproar, threw himself upon him, shouting, Hands of Iceland is taken! Victory! Hands of Iceland is taken! Repeated every voice, whether in tones of triumph or distress. The little man had vanished. For some time the mountaineers had realized that they must perforce submit to superior numbers, for the Munkholm musketeers had been joined by the sharpshooters from the forest and by detachments of lancers and foot dragoons who poured in from deep gorges, where the surrender of many of the rebel leaders had put a stop to slaughter. Brave Cannibal, wounded early in the fight, was made a prisoner. Hans of Iceland's capture deprived the mountaineers of such courage as they still possessed, and they threw down their arms. When the first beams of the rising sun gilded the sharp peaks of lofty glaciers still half submerged in darkness, mournful peace and fearful silence reigned in Black Pillar Pass, broken only by feeble moans borne away by the chill breeze. Black clouds of crows flocked to those fatal gorges from every quarter of the horizon, and a few poor goat herds, who passed the cliffs at twilight, hastened home in terror, declaring that they had seen an animal with the face of a man in Black Pillar Pass seated on a heap of slain drinking their blood end of chapter 39